So I ended up on, on the Big Ten Network. I ended up on ESPN National. And I think a lot of it, though, if you step back, it just shows that when people want information, it really we can, should not be reticent about sharing it and sharing what we know and sharing what we don't know. The Medical Alley podcast is brought to you by MentorMate. For over 20 years, the healthcare industry's largest companies have trusted MentorMate to guide their vision while designing and developing innovative digital products. Whether you're powering a medical device, overhauling your backend architecture, or reimagining your patient experience, MentorMate can help. The global team takes a personalized and in-depth approach to deliver secure solutions in all sectors of healthcare. With deep expertise in design, development, cloud, and software support, MentorMate helps healthcare clients administer state-of-the-art care through technology. Trusted guidance, global expertise, secure integration. MentorMate delivers digital transformation at scale. Learn more at MentorMate.com. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon to everyone out there in Medical Alley. Uh, Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Medical Alley podcast. We have one that I am personally very excited about, what should be an interesting interview and one that might be someone you're familiar with already. I'm joined today by Dr. Bill Maurice, who's the president and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, an organization that I have been a client of multiple times, and I always appreciate the work that you guys do. Dr. Reese, I really appreciate you being on today. Uh, Something I've always wondered about is just a really simple thing. You guys have a a very big laboratory set up. Do you know how many samples come in to Mayo Clinic Labs every day? So in from the outside. So so people, it's important to remember Mayo Clinic Labs is what allows us to take the testing that we do for our patients on our campus, predominantly in Rochester, and make them available for people that never visit our campuses. So the specialty that's here. Um, and that's uh, it's a significant number. It's about thirty to forty thousand specimens every day that come predominantly into the Rochester facility. There's a little bit that happens in Florida as well, but into Rochester, thirty to forty thousand specimens a day. So up to you know maybe up to even a, a million tests in a month. That wow! I mean, it, it's like a metropolitan area coming in every month. Yeah, it's hard to believe. Right? I mean, it's it's something. It gets very Minnesotan. You wouldn't really think of that happening here in Rochester, but it does. Of course, of course. Well, um, we'll back up for a second. And can you tell our listeners, for those who aren't familiar with you or your work, would you just give us a quick introduction of who you are? Sure. So I'm Dr. Bill Maurice. I guess you said that already. So I am a, have a, both an MD and physician as well as a PhD. I came to Mayo Clinic in 1987 to do that training, to come here from medical school and graduate school. And I've been here ever since. And so I did clinical medicine and then I did laboratory medicine training. My, my subspecialty is hematopathology, meaning the diagnosis of disorders of blood and, 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 uh, and lymphomas and things, blood cancers, things like that. Um, but for the last eight plus years, I have had the privilege of being the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, as well as the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. And as you mentioned, I will be transitioning. At Mayo Clinic, we have rotating leadership. So at eight years, leaders rotate, but I will be rotating into another leadership position, and that is to be the president and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories and Mayo Collaborative Services, which is the parent company of which Mayo Clinic Labs is a part. 
Oh, fascinating. I, I did not know that about, I knew the rotations, but I didn't know that sort of timeline for it. That's, that's quite interesting in its own right. Maybe for those who aren't as familiar with Mayo Clinic Laboratories, can you give an intro of that organization as well, of like the, the comprehensiveness of what you're up to? Sure. So, you know, what, one of the things that's when you think about, first of all, uh, a laboratory medicine and pathology department, it is a department that every other department in a healthcare system, in this case, Mayo Clinic, will use, right? Because everyone that comes into the doctor needs to be understand, needs a diagnosis or needs to test what right. they have or how they're responding to treatment, right? So because of that, and then you think about what Mayo Clinic is, and Mayo Clinic isn't a cancer center or a pediatric hospital. We're basically an answer shop for everybody mm -hmm. with medical issues, right? Um, and so we have in our department the most expansive test menu in the country, probably maybe one of them in the world. We do over 3,000 unique different tests in our department. And so it's, 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 it's quite remarkable. Any, anything from uh, testing of newborns for inborn errors uh, of metabolism or inborn errors in a newborn to very advanced esoteric uh, cancer testing to neurologic testing to all sorts of testing, right? So that's what our department is. And then actually one of my predecessors, also a hematopathologist, said, well, we should really think about how we make this specialized testing available to patients that never would come to Mayo Clinic, right? Because oh. oftentimes those tests are needed by doctors um, and they don't have, you know, they don't work at Mayo Clinic. So they don't have a department like ours across the street. And so that was Dr. Michael O'Sullivan who really started in the, in the region to say, you know, we should, he would drive, literally drive to other hospitals in our region and say, here are the tests that we perform. We know you do many of the same tests, and we really believe it's important that you continue to do those tests for your patients. But on the just like Mayo Clinic, we're here when someone has a complex condition that they can come to a place like Mayo and get get you know a group of experts around them. The lab, Mayo Clinic lab, same thing. You can do most of your testing. We want to help you understand how to do that for your patients. But when you really have something serious or complex, we want to be able to have you send that to us. That's in essence what that is what is at the core of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. So what Mayo Clinic Laboratories is then are all the pre and post analytical functions that, you know, there's, it's not so simple as just taking a blood specimen and sticking it in the mail. You know, it ha it's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's a patient. It's part of a patient. Mm -hmm. So we need all of the systems that allow us to know what that doctor is thinking, verify that the specimen gets here in a condition that it can be tested, do the testing, get the testing back out to the patient. Um, and to the provider as quickly as possible. That's all what Mayo Clinic Laboratories does. And from those really humble beginnings 50 years ago, it's now grown to you know the scale we talked about. We have actually over 4,000 hospitals that we work with in the US wow. and activities in over 60 countries. So it's actually a global business now. Um, that, but with that same business model of really doing for, for healthcare systems and for patients, the type of testing which they need from Mayo Clinic. I mean, that knowing that, especially knowing like Dr. Sullivan started driving out to the different hospitals to build those relationships, to bring that capability. It, it makes me think that's such a Mayo Clinic thing that is such a Minnesota healthcare thing to go, we have this capability that could benefit patients elsewhere. Let's go out and make sure they have access to it. I have to imagine that as we came into the pandemic, I think about March of 2020, that, that capability really came to the fore and not just the capability to do that much testing, but to do the specialized testing, the complex testing, and probably then also things that might be new or novel and not as well understood yet. 
as we went into the pandemic, which seems forever ago and yesterday at the same time, how did the work of Mayo Clinic Laboratories evolve and change and respond to what was happening all around you in Rochester and around the world? Yeah, well, first of all, I think like COVID time needs its own time scale because COVID time is weird. Um, I struggle with this, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, so first of all, it's important to remember that what we what Mayo Clinic Labs is part of Mayo Clinic, right? So it, it has at its core that that patient centricity, you know, the needs of yeah. the patient come first, and also the educational component. You know, one of the things if you are on the Rochester campus and you go over to the Plumber Building, you can go into the third floor and see where where the Mayo brothers went all over the globe, right? Trying to educate on med surgical technique and medical technique and all those things. And that's really what Mayo Clinic Labs, that's in essence, we are a continuation of that tradition because we, we try and deliver healthcare services, but we really try to educate. And we do all of that, even though it is a business activity, it's founded in the core principles of doing everything yeah. in the best interest of the patient. So come the pandemic, we do have this global network and very much a national network of uh you know of of logistics that we can we can employ and connections to hospitals to get testing out and really the first testing for covid on a scale of complexity infectious disease testing is not terribly complex the situation was terribly complex because no one had to test and the tests were in very limited supply there was you know we went from a disease that didn't exist to within four or five months every individual in the United States essentially wanting a test, right? And that's in every individual across the globe. So we really pivoted our machinery, um, all of our infrastructure to try and get, grow that testing, um, the testing capability. And we did that with a number of industry partners, including Roche early on, right? That worked with us on that. And then using our, our, our connections to hospitals to make that testing available. In fact, we were selected you know, we, I was at the at March of 2020. I was with a team that went to the White House as part of the American Clinical Laboratory Association board. That's the Trade Association for Labs, which I am now the board chair, actually. So we went to the White House in March of 2020 um, with that call for testing. You think back to those days and with the, for the big announcement, we met with Vice President Pence and Dr. Burks and others from that team. We came back with the charge that if we got access to testing, we were going to make it available, not just to Mayo Clinic patients, but also to use our capacity to the betterment of people across the state and across the country. So we did that. We were able to pivot all of our testing infrastructure for that. We have designed, I mean, when you when you think about it, when you go into a doctor and you have so much anxiety, and I've had the experience too about what, you know, what does the test show? What does it tell me? So we've always designed all of our test delivery to make get the test back in the hands of the doctor and the patient as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did with COVID. Um, we used our test as we grew our infrastructure to test. We did make sure that we could get tests out within 72 hours at, at most. So we actually we actually turned away some business because we didn't want to take in more business that we can handle. So right. we pivoted all of our infrastructure to that to have that same delivery for COVID testing that we had for everything else. And then to your point, the other thing we realized right away was that this was a new disease and there were going to be a lot of questions that doctors needed to answer. In particular, who was going to get really sick with COVID? How long would they be sick? So we have a whole innovation um, infrastructure within the department, uh, in particular in a location called the Advanced Diagnostics Lab in Discovery Square One. We actually pivoted all of our innovation 
uh, infrastructure into innovating around COVID. And in that first year, we developed about 20 new tests for COVID to answer different questions that doctors had about patients with COVID. And now, a word from our sponsor. The Medical Alley podcast is supported by Gamut One Studios. Gamut One Studios is a full-service photography and videography studio in the Twin Cities made up of a talented team of creative professionals. Gamut One Studios has extensive experience in the medical, health, and pharma industries, and for decades has been working with companies of all sizes to produce their visual projects. So if you're looking to refresh your website or elevate your marketing materials with new product photos, headshots, or corporate videos, you need to check out their work at gamutonestudios.com. And we'll come back to that innovation piece in a minute, but I'm, I'm curious now, I, I don't know how to describe what we're in or where we are today. People say normal, new normal, whatever, but in the world we're in today, that infrastructure that you've built up, are you finding, are you having to re-pivot? Are you deploying it in new ways? Like how are you now adapting Mayo Clinic Laboratories infrastructure to this world that we're, we're either in or entering today? Well, it was, first of all, I mean, it was very much, it, it, it was really an all hands on deck. I mean, I have yeah. to say, I'm so humbled by the response of our staff, people that volunteered to work night shifts in the COVID testing lab and that did different things that they, you know, that they had never done before. And their willingness to do that um, was really quite remarkable. So part of it, of course, is trying to pivot back to, you know, because the reality is that there are many healthcare and testing needs that were neglected because patients just didn't have access to care during the pandemic. Right. So we need to get back to that. Um, so part of it's kind of going back to where we were. Um, but at the same time, I think that where that watermark lies on what on what we're doing for testing is going to be different than, you know, the, can, the pandemic, to my mind, is sort of like a gigantic tidal wave that's hit the shore as it recedes. And it is in a, in a receding mm-hmm. phase. It's not over by any stretch. It's going to leave the landscape different. I think there's different expectations around testing. Um, that people have a new understanding around testing. There are people who want testing to meet them where they are, the whole concept of testing at home. So really, a lot of it's going back to making sure that we have the tests available to patients that need them, but also looking about how how people's expectations around testing and expectations around have changed, right? And so that's really where we're thinking now as we look forward with Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Ah, uh, but I might ask you to expand on that. You know, in a lot of my work is with our startup community, and for for a long time, um, things like home based or point of care testing was a very difficult business area to be in. Infrastructure wasn't necessarily there, reimbursement wasn't necessarily there, and and I would say we as patients weren't necessarily in that mindset. That wasn't how we thought about things. The pandemic has changed a lot of the ways we think about how we interact with the world, but with medicine in particular. Could you maybe just expand on how do you think diagnostic medicine has changed in the last couple of years and how we, how maybe as we as people see interacting with the medical community or with medicine? Yeah, that's a great question, Frank. And so I think there's really two facets to it. Uh, the first is kind of as you alluded to, for testing to be delivered and available, it's actually a pretty complex healthcare ecosystem, if you will, right? Healthcare delivery ecosystem, probably more accurately in terms of, you know, making the test affordable. If it, is it covered by, you know, is it covered by CMS and by insurers? You know, is it information presented back to a doctor that's understandable? All those things have to be thought about, right? And of course, we did in the crucible of COVID, there are some significant, and, and even the regulatory environment with FDA and others, right? So we, the, the, 
it was so clear, obviously, that, that we had to do things differently, that CMS, FDA, healthcare systems all moved the dial simultaneously to try and get the testing out as much as possible. We have to understand that as we go forward, because we've we've even struggled. Monkeypox, thankfully, is now on the wane as well. But that was another one that hit that the testing capabilities just really struggled to catch up. And I think that's kind of systemic approach to how we deliver testing in general, but particularly outside of a hospital uh, setting is now something we really have to think about going forward. And the other flip side of that is we've had the ability to do home testing for a long time. As is pointed out, one of the gentlemen that I've really been privileged, I've gotten to know so many wonderful people that's through the pandemic. That's a silver lining for me. And one this gentleman by name is Scott Garrett, who's now uh, at Water Street Capital, a private equity firm as, as one of the principals there, but it was a former CEO of Beckton Dickinson. And he, he, you know, early on, he's like, look, we've had technology to do home testing for years. It's just, to your point, people haven't really wanted it. And I think that now two things, number one, people are, I think, getting more comfortable with that, with that creation of information in the home environment and seeing the value of it, you know, when they don't have to go even now with home-based testing for COVID, you know, if you had to go into a setting to get a test for COVID to be able to go do something, it would be a major hassle, right? So people are seeing the value in it, number one. Uh, regulators are seeing the ways pass forward to, to make sure that it's safe, whether it's a supervised collection like we had with the vault testing for, you know, saliva testing for COVID in right. the state of Minnesota. So that, that all that piece is being put together. Lastly, I do think the economics favor more at-home testing because, of course, in the pandemic and in the height of it, we just had very limited resources to, to you know, hospitals were busy and didn't were concerned yeah. about getting overwhelmed. So we wanted people to stay away from, you know, from the hospital unless they needed it. So home testing made a lot of sense. Well, the reality is that the only way to really deflect the cost curve in in healthcare economics is to decrease utilization of this of the of the of the healthcare system. And as soon as someone shows up in the door of a healthcare system, they start utilizing the services, right? So right. you start to think about now, so I think a lot of people with good ideas around home-based testing and self-collection are going to see a much more fertile environment for those to actually germinate and take root because a lot of things have pivoted societally and in healthcare economics to favor mm -hmm. more home-based testing. Oh, very interesting. And it, you mentioned the, the advanced diagnostic lab or the ADL is, I take it then uh, diagnostic innovation is an area that Mayo Clinic Laboratories is working in. I mean, it, is that the case? And do you also work then with like outside organizations on the development of new capabilities or technologies? Yeah. So I, the, the, another great question. So if you think about what Mayo Clinic is, um, you know, we have lots of, you know, you go down and, and you can see, you know, uh, the individuals that got the Nobel Prize for for discovering cortisol here, you know, and all those. Uh, the Kendall and Doctors Kendall and Hench, and so we've always been the place where people come for answers when they can't get answers other places. Which a lot of those answers come from the lab, which means that the lab continually has right. to be focused on innovation to serve the needs of our own patients. And also now, of course, the business because that's why people want to send things through Mayo Clinic Labs is to get access to that same sort of continuously advancing diagnostic capability, mm -hmm. acumen, right, and understanding how to fit all that in. The thing that's really for us, that has changed, and, and I say us really, and I just myself personally, I mean, so I got done with my training and joined the staff in 2000. And at that time, you know, a technology, the wheel on technology turned that such that maybe if you did some innovation on a new piece of equipment, it would la that equipment would be in the lab for five to 10 years even, right? 
and then it would be replaced. Well, think about, gosh, I mean, gosh, when I started, when I started uh, medical school, you know, wristwatches were still a fantasy, right? In terms of wristwatches, you could talk on the phone, I should say, not wristwatch, but a yeah. wristwatch yeah. that you could talk and give them your schedule. I mean, things that, that think about far technology has come in that time. The laboratory and the clinical lab is one area where that technology really intersects with patient care. You know, as you probably know from your listeners, there's a lot of people innovating technologies, many of them focused on diagnostics. And so it only makes sense that if we really want to innovate, in this world, we're now now a technology turnover is maybe three years, and maybe every five years there's some really disruptive technology, or maybe even less. We have to partner with those that are the purveyors of those technologies to help kind of bring them into our environment, understand the best use cases for them, understand the real value that they bring to healthcare, and then also in, in, innovate with them, sort of on the implementation sides of these new technologies. So yeah, we do have done a lot. The ADL was created in part to create a physical location for those interactions to occur. And, you know, we've had, uh, we do have uh, companies now, Thermo Fisher being the most significant, that are, that are actually bringing technologies in there for us to, to essentially uh, co-innovate on them. And innovation is everything from discovering new to really discovering how to use new in daily healthcare, which is, of course, mm. one of the biggest hurdles that technologies face. Oh, that's fantastic. And I'll say to the listeners out there, uh, if you're interested in learning more about Discovery Square and the activities that are going out there that Dr. Maurice referenced, reach out. It is a fantastic development that's going on. Now, if you haven't been to Rochester recently and seen the startups, the innovations that are popping up there, you're missing out. No, as, as someone that's raised his family in Rochester, I mean, it's really, it's really uh, energizing for me to see those mm -hmm. companies come in. And it is, it's really is a substantial change. Over the last, you know, ten years, five years, particularly accelerated, even through COVID, um, it's been a real privilege for me as as the leader of Mayo Clinic Laboratories to be part of that kind of uh, transformation of our community in a very positive way. And that's part of what's the the whole going back to you know my new role. And part of the reason for that is that the pandemic really did demonstrate the power of diagnostics and the desire for outside companies and outside entities to work with Mayo Clinic in understanding and innovating around healthcare needs for patients. And so what we want to do is even be more active participants in that industry, because the reality is that we need companies like Mayo Clinic and Mayo Clinic Laboratories that are really focused on the needs of the patient to participate in that industry, to make sure it always is focused on serving the needs of individuals in society and in healthcare. Yeah, well said. Um, I think that is one of the most unique things about this community. If I go back to the beginning of Medical Alley in 1984, Earl Bakken's idea was, what if we got the payers, the providers, and the technology firms together as equals? Might they come up with better ideas to improve patient care and lower costs than if they were siloed? And I think what you just described is living that in reality right now bringing new technologies that are ultimately going to benefit patients here, but all around the world in ways that probably would have happened if it was only the technology company or only Mayo Clinic working on it. So right on and well said. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I, I think Francis beyond, I mean, there's beyond even just what you would do, think of as a traditional healthcare company, right? So mm -hmm. over the last, one of the things with the growth of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, of course, and we, get, we got to get those 40,000 specimens in to Rochester, right? So uh, FedEx 
has been uh, partnered with ours along the way to think about what does that mean logistically we have to get the specimens here we have to be able to track them you know how how specimens are identified we have our own distinct box color what that we use fedex is still as our preferred uh, uh, kind of vendor or, or partner i guess logistical partner in this space um just thinking about that how specimens are transported how we track them um all these things that are these are, are you don't think of them as innovations that you need but if you're a patient that's sitting in a hospital in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and your doctor says, yeah, I need to get this test to Mayo Clinic because I think you might have this condition that they have a test for, those things all become material and those innovations become really impactful really quick, right? Because it's a whole, so that's the beauty of it. Is there, and I think now because of the pandemic, there is a desire of companies outside of what we think of as traditional healthcare to participate in, in the kind of the creation of the industry. Indeed. Yeah. And shout out to FedEx, a longtime member. The things we have learned about even pre-pandemic, the impact of logistics on making healthcare work better are incredible. And the folks in Memphis have done incredible work. And uh, I, I'm a big fan of seeing the planes landing in Rochester every day. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Coming in for a landing, let's say, I want to shift to a, a different topic. Some of our listeners are, are going to be familiar with you already because they've heard you on like KFAM. And I think this was a, another big lesson uh, a lot of us got during the pandemic that are close to healthcare, where we know about these things. We sometimes speak in a language that isn't always super understandable to those outside of it. You did a lot of work, spent a lot of time speaking to the broader public in different channels and reaching people who maybe weren't hearing the message in the channels we usually think of. I'm just curious, but how did the, the KFAN thing get started or, and why did you go about doing so much uh, public health communication in, in channels that maybe we wouldn't usually think of as the place we got to talk about these issues? Well, <laughs> there's a lot there. So I'm starting with Dan Burrow and I have to say, you know, I was, I was so pleased to see him in inducted into the Minnesota Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Um, you know, he is, I could, I'd listened to his show. I'd read his column back when he was a columnist for the Star Tribune. And I always loved his show because he didn't sidestep issues and he, and he, and the breadth of issues that they would cover was the real humanity to it with humor, you know, which is always good. I was just always drawn to it. So when the media requests were coming through in the March of 2020, you know, when that, when the pandemic really became the story, right? Um, that was one that came in I, that I volunteered to do just because I had great respect for the show. And now having to, you know, Justin Garden, the way he produces, I mean, there's, there's a real top flight team there. So I called in, I spent an hour. I'm a huge sports fan as well. Uh, so that's a big part of it, right? And I've grown up in Minnesota and have, my father-in-law has strong uh, sporting ties in Minnesota. So uh, anyway, so that was part of the draw as well. And so I got done with that first. I'll never forget. We were actually talking about why there was so much variation in what people were saying was going to happen with COVID. And I used kind of the money ball analogy, right? That it's all statistical modeling. And so a lot depends on what you put into the model in terms of what the output is. And so that's why we still miss on draft picks and people still miss on yeah. agents, right? So, um, because modeling is limited. And so that was a and start. And I called in or I emailed afterwards um, and thanked Justin for having me on and said, I really enjoyed it. And he's like, well, we had like having you on. And uh, there is a lot of COVID stories and not as much sports going on. So between those two <laughs> things, 
I got back on more and more with Dan. And, you know, Dan's a very influential person. And so there were others, particularly a guy by the name of Christopher Gabriel, who has a, uh, was on ESPN Radio in the Central Valley region of California, who's worked with Dan and now is on, I believe, a CBS a, a news outlet there with a big listenership. So he had me on because he heard me explaining it. And that then it kind of grew. It turns out sports journalism, particularly sports radio, is a pretty small community. So I ended up on on the Big Ten Network. I ended up on ESPN National. You know, it was really – and I think a lot of it, though, if you step back, it's num- there are a couple things. Number one, it just shows that when people want want information, it really – we can, should not be reticent about sharing it and sharing what we know and sharing what we don't know. I think that's a lot of what we – I think it's important to, to not to simplify, but to make things understandable to people. But that doesn't mean oversimplifying or that doesn't mean canning it in a way that you're trying to just kind of give your view of things. Um, one of the most gratifying comments that, had, that has happened is I've had a number of people, I got a chance to join Dan at the State Fair a couple of times, and people just came up and thanked me because I was just very balanced. They said, you just didn't feel like you had an agenda. Or on Twitter, I had people say I'm on one side or the other, but I, I joke with Dan, and it means I must be doing it right. The other thing, though, it shows an importance for trust in, mm-hmm. in societal institutions, right? I think that's one of the things that's been really sad. There's been a real erosion of trust. And I'll leave full, I mean, people just had questions around diagnostics that they never had before. All of a sudden, diagnostics became impactful for everyone, how they just basically conducted their daily life. And they were looking for a trusted voice in the, as they tried to sort through all that. And Mayo Clinic was an obvious place for them to go. So I think it was really it was a lot of it about Mayo Clinic and the struggles that I stand on here, my, my proclivity, for talking and then my and then just the need for people just be hear an honest voice. And I think that's that it was really those combination of factors. Indeed. And I think that might be the piece that we'll take away from this conversation. I love that of sharing what we know and what we don't know. And that's probably the best thing we can do to help restore trust in societal institutions. So Dr. Maurice, I might say at this point, thank you so much for sharing what you do know and don't know with our community and being a part of the straight ecosystem for so long. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I enjoy it. And what I really enjoy um, making the connections that things like podcasts and, you know, that because I a connected world where we're really understanding each other is a much better one. So thank you for the opportunity to come on. Right on. Connected world is a much better world. And folks, that's been another episode of the Medical Alley Podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, make sure you check out medicalalleypodcast.org, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Until next time, have a great day.